We're diving into Jonah, no pun intended. Never mind. Um, and so this can actually be a five-week uh, sermon series that we're going to go through. And so I'm just doing the introduction to that. Uh, before we, we get going, let's pray. So Lord, I, uh, I thank you just for our time to be here together. Lord, I thank you to be able to study your word, to worship you, to just be in your presence. Lord, I pray that um, as we go into another passage that often seems so familiar, Lord, that you would show us what you want us to see, to hear, and to show us how it should be changing and impacting our lives. In your name. So Jonah, who is he? If you read the book, it just tells you he's, he's, who, who his dad is. That's the extent of what we get out of it, and that's it. No real context. So to really find anything about, out about Jonah, because there really isn't much in the Bible, you actually have to go to 2 Kings 14. And there what you find is verse 23. In the 15th year of Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, began to reign in Samaria, and he reigned 41 years. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin. He restored the border of Israel from Leboth Hamath as far as the Sea of Arabah, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke by a servant, Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet who was from Gath Hefer. For the Lord saw the affliction of Israel was very bitter, for there was none left, bond or free, and there was none to help Israel. But the Lord had said that he would not blot out the name of Israel from under heaven. So he saved them by the hand of Jeroboam, the son of Joash. So you get a small little mention. Jonah prophesies blessing on Jeroboam. We'll call him Jeroboam the second because there's Jeroboam the first and there's Jeroboam the second. And it gets confusing to keep track. So we're just going to call him Jeroboam the second. And what's interesting about this is Jeroboam the first is not a great guy. And let, let me put it in context for you. The prophecy that's given to Jeroboam the first is God will destroy the house of Jeroboam like a man burns up dung. Okay? So that's the prophecy against Jeroboam the first. We're told Jeroboam the second is the same type of guy. And all of a sudden, we get a prophecy that's basically like, hey, I'm going to bless you. That seems unexpected. So automatically, we should be thinking, I wonder about this Jonah guy. Not that he's not speaking, because this very clearly says this is from the Lord, but that there's something about Jonah that we should be sort of sitting and going, hmm, that's interesting. What should we be doing with this Jonah guy? So the next thing to think about is, who is this um, city, Nineveh, that God is sending him to? And the first place we find Nineveh mentioned is way back in the table of 70 nations in Genesis 10, verses 8 through 12. Cush fathered Nimrod. He was the first on earth to be a mighty man. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord, the beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Eric, Akkad, and Kalna, and the land of Shinar. From that land he went into Assyria and built Nineveh, Rehoboth, Ir, Kala, and Resin from between Nineveh and Kala, that is, the great city. So Nineveh, we already know that the guy who builds Nineveh is the same guy who builds Babel. And we have great feelings about Babel. And now he's being sent to Nineveh, and we're like, uh-oh, hmm, 
This is interesting. So we already have questions about who Jonah is and what, what's, what's his behavior. Two, we're a little concerned about Nineveh itself. So let's get some historical context on Nineveh itself. So Nineveh is the capital of the Assyrian city, of the, of the Syrian empire. Now, in 75 years from the time when um, Jeroboam is, around 75 years, Assyria is going to be the, the empire that takes away the 10 kingdoms of, northern, the tri- of the northern tribes of Israel. So here they are. This is that Assyria that Jonah is being sent to. Now, historically, what, should, what do we know about Nineveh? We have records um, actually from inside of the king's palace in Nineveh. And they're very graphic. And so if I if, uh, actually refer to the next slide, two slides, there it is. All right, so this is specifically from a battle, um, a representation of a battle in Lachish, um, which is actually mentioned um, just before Jerusalem is taken away um, by Babylon. Assyria tries to take uh, uh, Jerusalem away. And so what happens is, is soldiers that are captured are impaled on spikes outside of the city, so that way everyone who's in the city can see and know what their fate is going to be. So that's pretty satisfying, right? To make it worse, once the city is captured, oh, um, sorry, sorry. Um, uh, Once it's captured, you're going to want to, mute on the next one too then. Um, uh, The people who are captured are flayed. Specifically, the leaders. The leaders are the ones that are flayed. Um, And so from that standpoint, we're we're left wondering about Assyria and Nineveh and what great place it is that Jonah is being sent to. The people are not treated that way. They are taken, and, and actually the way the uh, Assyrian Empire works is they are taken and basically we figure out what their skills are, and they're put into different portions of other kingdoms. And the idea is, is to take advantage of their skill sets. They're not punished. It's only the soldiers and the leaders who are put, in, put through that. But it, you know, we're, we're here. This is historical context for, for Jonah, okay? And if we don't recognize what Jonah's feeling or noticing as he's being called, it's, we miss a lot. So, biblical context. Elijah is called in 1 Kings 19. And what's interesting about 1 Kings 19, I'll just read it to you and then you can help me out with this. So, um, Elijah is now on top of the mountain and he's meeting with the Lord. And the Lord said to him, Go, return your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael to be king over Assyria. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of about Abel Meloha, you shall appoint to be prophet in your place. So what's interesting about that? Anything? Any thoughts? First prophet to be asked, yeah. Isn't there somebody else that um, becomes prophet after him and not Abel? Uh, so Elisha is at the, at the end there. So he's sent to, to Elisha. What's interesting here um, specifically is, is that this is the first prophet who is called to anoint a king who is not an Israelite. 
So there's a transition in history that God continues to mature and move his people through greater and greater responsibility. And so Elijah initiates this phase of going out not just to the people of Israel, but out farther. And so with that phase, all of a sudden we see all these people being sent here and there and all over the place. And so with that context, we shouldn't be surprised to find that Jonah is being sent out to Nineveh, whether we like it or not. So if we see now, um, where does Jonah go when he's called? And next slide for that. Uh, Little a over sort of on the right hand of the slide is where Jonah starts. Now he's called to the northeast, not super far away. And instead he flees about 3,000 miles west of where he's supposed to go. So instead of going where he's supposed to, he decides to go on a cruise. Doesn't turn out so good for him. And so we have all of this. So why did Jonah flee? And actually he tells us why he flees. In Jonah 4, verse 2. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was in my, yet in my country? That is why I might haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Sorry, I was, trying to do the, I, figured, I was trying to figure out how I could do the rhythm thing that Michael did, and I figured I'd just mess it up, so I just left it out from the steadfast love. Um, so Jonah knows God's character, and he chooses to go the other way. Now, it doesn't answer the question, really, why did Jonah flee? Because he seemed okay with offering a prophecy against a king who deserves punishment, of blessing. But in this case, he won't bring something that may or may not bring judgment or blessing against another king. So just to say Jonah doesn't want to see people blessed that deserve to be punished misses the point. We don't have a full answer on this, but here's some some thoughts on what people have have sort of tried to think through knowing context of, of what's going on and from there how why is Jonah responding the way he is? He's not part, the Nineveh is not part of Jonah's in-group. And what we mean by that could be he's not a Jew, so he has issues with race. He has issues with nations. He's not, in his, he's not of the kingdom of Israel, and so therefore he can't, he doesn't want to see other nations blessed, but only Israel. Neither of those things are totally relevant to us, unlikely. He doesn't want to see those type of things happen. He doesn't want to see um, groups that don't see the way he sees blessed. We would never do that with other churches, other organizations. None of those things are relevant to us. So what you're going to hear um, over the next couple of weeks, we're, uh, likely as you're, you're, we're going through, is we're going to use a little bit some... Uh, a commentary that is actually a poetry commentary written in the 70s. So you'll recognize why the, the feel of the poems um, by a guy named Thomas Carlyle. So this one's called Reprimand to a Naive Deity. I will not advertise this crazy scheme of yours. 
God, what a farce that men should sin and find escape. I mean, of course, not me, but all our mutual antagonists. Dear God, kind God, don't listen to their prayers. So Deuteronomy 32 is another possible explanation for why does Jonah respond the way he does. Now, Deuteronomy 32 is packed with theology. Um, many people or m- most scholars will refer to Deuteronomy 32 actually as a, the dirty Deuteronomy 32 worldview. It's a biblical worldview that is just packed with information in it. And it comes at the point when a, um, Moses is transitioning leadership to Joshua. And when they're having this conversation, God basically tells um, Moses and Joshua that Israel is going to be unfaithful and that this song that Abraham is going to sing will be basically a witness against Israel if they go after other gods. It's supposed to be a reminder, but also a witness of what's to come if they're unfaithful. And the reason that is relevant to specifically this is God says that if they are unfaithful and go, if Israel is unfaithful and goes after other gods, then he will go after another people. And so for Jonah to hear, knowing how unfaithful Israel is, to see that all of a sudden there is a God going after another people is one of those things that to miss that, to miss that alignment, to miss that statement that's so far back is to misunderstand things about how Jonah's responding. And again, It's totally irrelevant to us, so just don't worry about that portion, right? So, another poem from Thomas Carlyle, Negotiation with a Higher Power. I will demonstrate my immediate obedience, providing you comply with my demand for a more satisfying assignment. Never us. So, what type of literature is Jonah? If I were to ask you that, and give you the choices between story or narrative, poetry, discourse, or prophecy, I would suspect that we would go with narrative. Story. That would be the default answer. So why would we think anything else besides that? And here, let me give you a couple examples. So the beginning of Hosea 1.1, the word of the Lord that came to Hosea, the son of Beeri, in the day of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, king of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. Jeremiah 1, 1 1-2. The words of Jeremiah, the son of Hilkiah, one of the priests who were in Anathoth in the land of Benjamin, to whom the word of the Lord came in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah, in the thirteenth year of his reign. Ezekiel 1, 1 1-3. In the thirteenth year, in the fourth month, on the fifth day of the month, As I was among the exiles by the Chebar Canal, the heavens were opened, and I saw visions of God. On the fifth day of the month, it was the fifth year of the exile in King Jehoiachin, the word of the Lord came to Ezekiel, the priest, the son of Buzi, in the land of the Chaldeans by the Chebar Canal, and the hand of the Lord was upon him there. Joel 1.1, the word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Pethuel. And so if we compare that, the beginning, of Jonah, now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai. Sounds a little bit like a prophecy book, maybe. So, 
to understand this, we need to understand a couple of things. One is that prophets may embody their prophecies. And some of these are pretty uncomfortable. Isaiah walked around naked for three years. Wow. Ezekiel had to lay on his side for 390 days and bake bread over human poop. Hosea was required to marry a prostitute. Jeremiah was stuck in a well and is sinking in the mud, and that same imagery then is starting to be used to describe kings and their obedience, uh, their lack of obedience, and what's going to happen to them. And so we get to see all of these different examples where prophets do more than just say things. They often embody what they are saying. So what about Jonah? So one of the ways, really, to, to notice this, to understand this, we actually need to read some images that are described of exile. Hosea 8, 8 to 9, Israel is swallowed up. Already they are among the nations as a useless vessel, for they have gone up to Assyria, a wild donkey wandering alone. Ephraim has hired lovers. Psalm 124, verses 1 through 5. If I had not been the Lord who was on your side, let alone let Israel now say, if it had not been the Lord who was on our side when it, people rose up against us, then they would have swallowed us up alive. When their anger was kindled against us, then the flood would have swept us away. The torrent would have gone over us. Then over us would have gone the raging waters. Jeremiah 51, 34. Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, has devoured me. He has crushed me. He has made an empty vessel. He has swallowed me like a monster. He has filled his stomach with my delicacies. He has rinsed me out. So we get to see all of these uh, images of things being swallowed. Deuteronomy 31. Again, this is in context of the discussion about Deuteronomy 32. Then my anger will be kindled against them in that day, and I will forsake them and hide my face from them, and they will be devoured, and many evils and troubles will come upon them, so that they will, be, will say in that day, Have not these evils come upon us, because our God is not among us. And I will surely hide my face in that day because of all the evil that they have done, because they have turned to other gods. So there's something about exile and being swallowed or devoured. And all of a sudden we get a story about a prophet being swallowed. Maybe just simple accident. But let me read you a, a statement. God's rebellious covenant people are unfaithful and disobey God. Then they suffer the consequences of their disobedience. However, God doesn't abandon them, but through his grace, he redeems them and brings them out the other side. Nothing super surprising about that. That sounds pretty accurate representation of what, go, what Israel goes through. So let me change a couple words for you. Let me add some of that imagery of exile. God's rebellious covenant people are unfaithful and disobey God. Then they suffer the consequences of their disobedience by being swallowed up by another nation and going into exile. However, God doesn't abandon them, but through his grace, he brings them through a situation that looks like it should lead to death of the people, and instead, he returns them to their original calling. Starts to sound a little bit more like Jonah. Let me read Jonah's summary. God's prophet is rebellious and unfaithful and disobeys God. He suffers the consequences of his disobedience by being swallowed by a great fish. However, God does not abandon him, but through his grace, he brings him through a situation that looks like it should lead to death. 
and instead returns him to his original calling. So Jonah, prophecy, narrative, yes, that's the answer. It's both. So what can we learn from this? Why should this matter? What are we supposed to do with this? Well, here's, here, you know, think about this. Here is Jonah, and he is showing Israel what happens when disobedience is continued. They can turn, and they can be obedient, or they can be swallowed and taken away. Jonah is a representation of what Israel is facing, what they're up against if they choose to continue to disobey. They don't choose obedience, and so they're swallowed, just like Jonah is. And in the same way, they can come out the other side. They are brought through something that many nations, once they're swallowed and taken away in exile, they never seen again. That's the end of, their, the, the, of, of them. And they're brought through that, out the other side. And just like Jonah, they're returned, you know, and you get to see in chapter 3, Jonah is called again to go to Nineveh. In the same way, Israel is called again to be faithful. But realistically, just like Jonah He doesn't do a very good job, even after being brought through death and out the other side. His execution leaves a lot to be desired. And so does Israel. They both do the same thing. They're brought through, and yet they're still not faithful by themselves. So who's at risk with this, with this, with this issue? Um, To quote Jeff Myers, actually a pastor in St. Louis, um, I think that Jonah's son, uh, sin is private and, and only his own, then we would be mistaken. His actions have consequences, not only for himself, but also for the Gentiles. If Jonah would have been faithful, then the Gentiles wouldn't have been in peril on the sea. So this great storm has come on the sea because of Jonah's unfaithfulness. And in the same way, we get to see the same thing with Israel. When Jonah is disobedient, he puts others at risk. When Israel is disobedient, they put even a larger portion of the world at risk. And the same thing can be true of us. We're God's people, and we're called to be faithful. We can respond to that appropriately, or we can't. And as we do, we change and turn the world as we are either unfaithful or faithful. It often feels that, not doesn't feel like that. It feels like we don't have the influence. But that's not what the Bible tells us. The Bible tells us that as we're faithful, we turn nations, that we are the thing that truly turns and runs because of God inside of us. And so if we don't understand that, we miss a lot. So when Jonah is disobedient, then the sailors are in trouble. So when Israel is disobedient, then the whole world is in trouble. Instead of bringing blessing, redemption, and restoration into the situation, Jonah brings chaos and puts others at risk because of his disobedience. When God's people are unfaithful and disobedient, they put others at risk. So what hope do we have? Jonah, even as God's prophet, can't be faithful. If, even after being brought through death, his execution of obedience leaves a lot to be desired. And the same thing with Israel, right? They're brought through exile, and when we come onto the scene in Jesus' life, we still don't see a very faithful people. They're still lacking. They're still not there. So what confidence, what hope can we possibly have on our own to do this? And that's the answer. On our own, we can't. Acts 10 has Peter. And this is that scene with the sheet and the unclean animals being lowered. 
Of all places for him to be, he's in Joppa. Simon's other, Peter's other name is Simon of, son of Jonah. Simon, son of Jonah, is called from Joppa to the Gentiles. Coincidence or God's omniscience? I go with two. So God calls Jonah, uh, Simon, son of Jonah, Peter, to be faithful, to go out to the Gentiles, and he does. And the reason is, is because he has the Holy Spirit inside of him in a way that no one else had before. And in the same way, we too can be the same thing. We can be faithful not because of just our will to do so, but because Holy Spirit lives inside of us, and therefore we can be faithful. So we can faithfully respond to God's call because of the Holy Spirit. And because of that, we can bring blessing, redemption, and restoration to all people. Any questions before I close? Lord, I thank you today for the story of Jonah. For showing us what it means to be both unfaithful and the repercussions of that. And again, even to be able to look forward through scripture and to see how it isn't us, but you who lives inside of us that allows us to live faithfully, to bring that restoration, redemption, and blessing to all nations, to all peoples. And Lord, I thank you for that pouring out of your spirit into us. In your name, amen.